Without debate, we live in a wicked world. And it's sad to say that you know, everything just seems to be getting worse and worse every day. Crime rates continue to increase as the economy continues to collapse. The real reality of World War III is concerning to many, and natural disasters continue to impact our crops as more and more farmers are concerned about famine. And as we continue to consider how quickly our country is embracing all manner of sexual immorality, well, I have no doubt that Christians are becoming less and less comfortable with the way things are going. Chances are you're a disciple who is disturbed as we struggle to find some sort of peace on this planet. And if this sounds like your situation, then I'm happy to inform you that the Christian who is focused on the second coming of Christ is the Christian who will be comforted. Here in our text today, we find Paul, he's setting out to comfort the Christians who were there at the church in Thessalonica. And he does this by reminding them about the second advent of our Savior, Jesus. And as we study the scriptures that are before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the comfort of the second coming includes the rest of refuge. We'll also see that the comfort of the second coming includes the relief of reunion. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider how the comfort of the second coming includes the reality of the rapture. I'll put this as the outline. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here we find Paul, he's presenting the people with these words of comfort. As you make your way to the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I should first take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll, I'll remind you here that Paul actually began this chapter by encouraging his audience to love one another with the agape love of the Lord. And while it's true that every Christian must learn how to walk in the love of the Lord, well, it's also true that Christians should also learn about the end times And we should learn about the second coming of Christ. And it's for this reason that Paul shifts his attention from his lesson on love to a discourse on the doctrine of Christ's second coming. Well, with this as our focus, I want to pick up our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 13, here Paul declares, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Here in these verses we find Paul. He's comforting the hearts of the Christians who were there in Thessalonica. And he does this by helping them to have a better understanding of our Savior's second coming. I'll remind you that the original recipients of this epistle were not only struggling with poverty, but they were, they were also believers who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And knowing that they were struggling and suffering in all these different ways, 
Paul wanted to comfort those Christians by refocusing their faith on the hope of eternal glory. In order to prove my point, let's take a closer look at the comforting words that Paul presented here in 1 Thessalonians 4. If you would look with me once again, beginning at verse 13, here Paul declares, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Now, there are those who believe that ignorance is bliss. And yet, I can assure you that this was not Paul's opinion. In Paul's opinion, ignorance is not bliss. No, instead, Paul believed that those who will take the time to learn about the return of our Redeemer, these are the Christians who will be comforted as we gain a greater understanding about the second coming of Christ. And it's my prayer that we would all be comforted in this way as we continue to consider the information that Paul was presenting to the Christians who were still confused even about the afterlife. And with this as the focus, let's take another look at the comforting words found here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 13, once again, here again Paul declares, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That's some of you already this morning. Now just to be clear, it'll help you to know that Paul wasn't referring to those who missed church because they overslept, you know, like second service people. No, instead, Paul was referring to the believers who had already passed away. As a matter of fact, the term fallen asleep was translated from a Greek word which was used in a figurative sense of those who were deceased. So Paul wasn't referring to those who were literally sleeping. No, instead, he was speaking of those who had already died. Proof of my point is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's there where Paul declares, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If, in fact... The dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's making this argument. And within this argument for Christ's resurrection, he uses the word asleep to describe the disciples who had already died. The reason for using this word asleep is because the born-again believer who has passed from this plane of existence isn't dead. The believer who has passed from this plane of existence is not dead. And while it's true that their physical body is laid to rest here in this world, it's also true that the immaterial aspect of their being is there with the Lord. And it's for this reason that the word asleep is more accurate than the word dead. I like the way that Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's there where he declares we are confident, yes, well-pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The believer who is absent from this physical body after this body gives up the ghost, so to speak, well, they're, they're actually present with the Lord. And Paul was filled with courageous confidence as he considered the afterlife. The reason why is because he was absolutely certain that death is just a doorway that leads us into the presence of our Savior. 
And listen, he was not only confident, but he was also comforted as as he considered what it will be like to be with Christ Jesus. He was well pleased to consider being present with the Lord. Not only that, but he also wanted to share this comforting truth with the Christians there in Thessalonica so that they might have hearts that were filled with the same sort of hope. With that, I want to consider again how Paul puts it here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you would uh, look with me again at verse 13, here again Paul declares, I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now that word hope in a Christian context, it refers to the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. And it's sad to say that uh, there is really no hope at the funeral of an unbeliever. There's no confident expectation of salvation. No, instead, there's only sorrow as friends and family mourn the loss of their loved one. In contrast to this, there's hope at the funeral of a believer. And the reason why? Well, it's because we do have that joyful and confident expectation that we will see them again together in the presence of our Savior. It's also interesting to note that the Greek word, which was translated hope, it speaks of an emotional refuge. I like the way that Thayer explains it. He defines the word hope in this way. He says it's that in which one confides or to which he flees for refuge. In other words, those who mourn the death of a believer can find emotional refuge in the fact that we will see them again. Therefore, we can take comfort in knowing that they aren't really dead. They aren't really dead. No, instead, they're resting. They're in the presence of our Savior Jesus as they wait for us to join them. I like the way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's there where he declares, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Simply put, the believers who have already passed away. They aren't really dead. No, instead, they are asleep in in some sort of way. But but really, in truth, they're alive in Christ. Therefore, rather than mourning uh, for a deceased believer, like an unbeliever who has no hope, the believer can actually be comforted in the midst of our grief as we rest in the refuge of uh, of our Savior's resurrection. Therefore, rather than stewing in sorrow over the death of the disciples we know, we ought to rest in the refuge of this hope as we look forward to the day when we will finally be reunited in the resurrection. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, the comfort of the second coming not only includes the rest of refuge, but the comfort of the second coming also includes the relief of reunion. And with this as the focus, let's continue to consider the comforting words that Paul was presenting here in our text today. And if you would look with me uh, once again in First Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll back up and begin reading there at verse 13. 
Here again, Paul declares, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, as we take a closer look here at verse 14, we must not fail to notice that the words of comfort were given to believers. These words of comfort are given to believers and to believers alone. This is precisely the point that Paul's presenting there in, in the beginning of verse 14 where he declares this. He says, if, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we can be comforted with the relief of this reunion. Now, for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that Paul wasn't referring to the belief that is nothing more than intellectual assent. He's not talking about that kind of belief. I'll remind you that the devil and his demons have that kind of belief. The devil and his demons believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we're not talking about this kind of, you know, an assent to the facts of something. You see, a person can believe in the historical facts of the gospel message without actually experiencing a true conversion to Christ. To further explain my point, it'll help you to know that the word believe found there in verse 14, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who have a conviction that results in a confident commitment. And in the context of Christianity, belief begins with intellectual persuasion that leads us then to submit our lives entirely to the authority of our risen Savior. And with that being the case, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, have I allowed the intellectual assent of the facts to actually become a confident commitment to Christ Jesus? Before you answer this question, we should take a closer look at the qualifications that Paul presented here in our text today. And so if you would notice with me again there at verse 14, here again he declares, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. In other words, true believers are those who are confident that Christ Jesus died on the cross and specifically for our sins, not for any sins he committed because he was sinless. He died on the cross for our sins. He's our substitutionary sacrifice. Not only that, but true believers are those who are confident that Christ Jesus then rose up from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And what this also means is that true believers are those who are confident that Christ Jesus is the incarnate Son of God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In other words, true believers are those whose faith leads them to trust entirely in the sacrifice of our Savior as we submit our lives to the King of Kings. I like the way that the Lord Jesus put it in John chapter 8. It's there where we learn that Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth And the truth shall make you free. Those who truly believe in the death and in the resurrection of Christ Jesus will then continue to confess that conviction as they abide in the word of God. And what this means is that those who truly believe in Jesus will submit to our Savior as we align our lives to the truth of God's holy word. The alignment is the fruit of the true belief. 
the ongoing confession is the fruit of the true belief. And if this is true of you, then you can also take comfort in the second coming of Christ. Let's consider again how Paul put it there in uh, verse 14 where he declares, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's describing the day when the Lord will reunite those who believe in him. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word bring found there in verse 14, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who lead another to a predetermined destination. Simply put, there's coming a day when those who are already with Jesus will then be led by the Lord to a predetermined destination. And it's at that point in time when the believers who are still alive will be reunited with those who have already passed. In order to further grasp how the promise of this reunion is able to comfort our hearts today, we should take some time to consider the celebration that we'll enjoy at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And with this as the focus, if you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation, and I'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Now, as you make your way to the 19th chapter of Revelation, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Christian church is figuratively known as the Bride of Christ. That's right, we are the bride of Christ. And according to John, there's coming a day when the universal church or the bride of Christ will be gathered together for the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want to consider how John describes it here in Revelation chapter 19. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5. Here John declares, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints." And he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Here in these verses, we find John describing this day when every believer will rejoice together as the universal church is gathered together for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Seeing how this celebration is taking place at the end of the great tribulation, Well, it seems reasonable to believe then that the marriage supper of the Lamb will actually take place after the second coming as we gather together in the millennial kingdom of Christ. Further proof of my point can be found here in Revelation chapter 19. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 11, here John goes on to declare, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And here in these verses we find John, he's describing this moment when the heavens will be opened up. And it's at that point in time when the king of kings will begin his invasion of the earth as he returns to destroy the nations who are gathered together there in the valley of Megiddo or what we might call Armageddon. 
According to John, the armies in heaven who are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, will follow him on white horses. Now, now who, are these, who are these people? Well, we were, we were just told in the previous verses, this is the, this is the church, this is the, the bride of Christ. So the bride of Christ has, has, has put on these white garments, these, these linen robes, and rather than going straight into the marriage supper, they come to the earth. They come to this earth following the Lord Jesus in his invasion of this planet. And it's at that point in time when the king of kings will strike the nations with the sharp sword that proceeds from his mouth. Let's consider how the apostle John describes it beginning there at verse 15. Here he declares, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here in these verses we find John describing this day when the Lord Jesus will finally return and after destroying the enemies of Israel, The Lord will rule and reign with a rod of iron from the throne of King David as he orders and establishes judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And as the new Jerusalem descends from the sky, every believer will be glad and rejoice as then we gather together for the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will occur at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Now, I don't know about you but I find great comfort in knowing that there's coming a day when every believer will be reunited together with the rest of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but we can also take great comfort in knowing that we will be raised incorruptible as we are brought into his presence. In order to prove my point, I want to consider the way that Paul put it in the letter that he sent to the church in Corinth. And so continue holding your place there in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, as you make your way to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I, I want to take a moment to consider the stress that occurs in the, in, in the hearts of some people uh, as, as you know, they uh, begin to prepare to attend their high school reunion. Some people are completely stressed out about it. And, and, and the reason why is because, you know, we, we tend to just continue falling apart the closer we get to, to the, the door of death, right? And, and there are those then who go to great lengths to present themselves as perfect at these, you know, school reunions or even family reunions. And they'll, like, get some work done, you know, so to speak. Or, you know, they'll, they'll start lifting some weights again before the reunion and that sort of thing. It's like we, we want to go back and we want to present ourselves as, as still being perfect, you know, like as perfect as we were when we were kids, whatever that means. If this sounds like a stress that you take on yourself before these sorts of reunions, then you might like to know that we don't have to have this same sort of stress when it comes to the reunion there in the presence of the Lord. And the reason why is because we're going to be raised incorruptible as the Lord unites us with those who are already with Jesus. And that's great news because you know what this also means is that we're going to be perfected and perfect in the presence of our Savior. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 51. Here he declares, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Just like in our nursery. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. From this we can see that there's coming a day when those who trust in the second coming of Jesus Christ we will finally be set free from all of our imperfections. You know, all all the imperfections that we try to work on while we're here in this world, all all the imperfections that we wish we could change overnight, they're all going to be gone. We're going to receive a brand new body, which is both immortal and infinitely incorruptible. And what this means then is that we will forever be free from all of the imperfections that we wish we could change today. And listen, all of the imperfections of all the other people who annoy us today, yeah, they're going to be perfected too. I'm only going to annoy you half as much as I did while I was here in this world. They're, they're in heaven. Isn't that nice to know? We can all take comfort in knowing that those who trust in the return of Jesus Christ will be raised in a state of perfection as we are reunited together. And it's going to be an incredible, incredible reunion of every believer. Well, with this, I'd like to now focus on the third and final point of this study because, listen, the comfort of the second coming not only includes the rest of refuge that, you know, happens when we have a heart that's filled with hope and and, and the second coming not not only comforts us with the relief of this reunion of those who are already with Jesus Christ, but, listen, the comfort of the second coming also includes the reality of the rapture. And and with this as the focus, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because, listen, it's here in our text today where we find Paul, he's comforting the hearts of those who were concerned about the second coming. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study beginning there at verse 15. Here Paul declares, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, And with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand the order of events which will eventually occur at the time of our Redeemer's return. And as we take a closer look at these verses, I should first point out that there are a few ideas regarding the proper ways to interpret Paul's description of this day when the church is finally caught away. Uh, This includes those who are known as post-tribulationists, and and they're called post-tribulationists because they believe that the rapture of the church is going to take place at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Then there are those who have embraced a position which is known as the pre-wrath rapture position, These Christians are convinced that the church is going to be raptured during the time of tribulation, but just before God's wrath is poured out on the planet. There are those who are known as mid-tribulationists, and uh, they're called mid-tribulationists because, of course, they believe that the rapture of the church will happen in the middle of the tribulation. Then there are those, like myself, who who are known as pre-tribulationists, and the reason why is because we believe the church is going to be caught away just before the beginning of the tribulation. Now, without debate, the church has been divided over these verses that were supposed to comfort us. Isn't that crazy? These verses were supposed to comfort us, (laughs) and Christians have been arguing about them ever since. 
The church has been divided over this non-essential doctrine, and, and there are a lot of Christians who make an essential out of it, and, and that's sad. You see, the reason for all this confusion is because when it comes to the doctrine of the rapture, we're really dealing with a small number of verses which aren't completely clear. Paul even has to come back in the next epistle to the Thessalonians and clear it up a little bit further. And, and with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that believers have been debating this doctrine for many, many, many years. When it comes to my own interpretation of this text, I, I realize that I might be wrong. I doubt it, but I might be. So with this disclaimer stamped on the study, let's take a closer look at these comforting words. If you would look with me again, I want to back up and begin reading once again at verse 15. Again, Paul declares, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until when? Until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or those who are dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, uh, when Paul refers here to those who will be caught up together, he's actually using the Greek word harpazo, which means to snatch away or to carry away by force. This is the Greek word that was translated rapimur in the Latin vulgate, which means also to be caught up or taken away. Rapimur is derived from the first person plural passive of the Latin word rapio, and rapio actually becomes the basis of our English word rapture, which is now used to describe this catching away of the church. So that's kind of how we get the word rapture from harpazo. Well, regardless of whether we call this the rapture of the church or the catching away or the snatching away, whatever you know, nomenclature you use, there should be no doubt in our minds that this event will take place as those who are alive and remain until when? Until the coming of the Lord, we will be caught up as we are reunited together with those who are already with him. Now, this sort of sounds like the rapture of the church is going to happen at the, at the end of the tribulation. If this happens at his coming, then it sounds like this is happening at the end of the tribulation. And so we must not fail to notice here that the church is actually being caught up, which is not the same as the Lord coming down all the way, right? We are caught up as he's coming down, and we're going to meet the Lord there in the air. Notice again in verse 16. Here we learn that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Some translations say the trump of God, and, I, and I, I'm concerned about that uh, translation. But, but regardless, the dead in Christ will rise first. So as the Lord is descending, there is also a rising of believers and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, the, the dead, who are being raised up, or the bodies who are, that are being raised up. And notice that, uh, you know, this descending is from heaven, and yet there's no mention of him returning to the earth at this point. So there's a descending of the Lord, and yet no actual arrival yet. No, instead, dead bodies are, you know, being raised up first. And, and, and then, you know, along with that, believers who are still alive at this point are being caught up or raptured as we're raised from this earth to meet the Lord where? In the clouds. In the clouds. Now, this reminds me of the way that Luke describes the ascension of our Savior in Acts chapter 1. 
It's in Acts 1 verse 9. He says, now when Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Maybe it was just a, a cloudy day. Maybe there is, in the, in the physical ascension of our Savior, you know, his ascension was obscured by some sort of cloud. May have been a natural cloud created by the condensed water vapors that float over the Earth's atmosphere or, or there in the Earth's atmosphere. At the same time, though, it's also possible that this was some sort of supernatural cloud, which is created you know, through the opening of some sort of heavenly portal. And, and in order to make my case for this, I'll remind you of the way that John describes the second coming of Christ. He informs us in Revelation 19 uh, that, uh, that he first saw heaven opened. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. But he sees heaven opening. And then he sees from that opening the Lord returning on a white horse. Sort of sounds like he saw this vision of the Lord passing through some sort of heavenly portal. It's also interesting to note that, the, that, that John describes the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 1 by declaring this. He says, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, Amen. In other words, the second coming of Christ will not only take place after some sort of heavenly portal is opened, but he's also coming with clouds as he approaches the earth. We find the same basic description in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, For example, in the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel account, we learn that they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. As we consider the Greek word, which is rendered clouds, listen, this word could be used in reference to the natural clouds created in our atmosphere by condensed water vapor. Uh, At the same time, the same Greek word could be referring to some sort of supernatural cloud. For example, I'll remind you about the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites by day as they made their way to the land of promise. Uh, This was some sort of theophany. It wasn't just some water vapor cloud. This was some sort of theophany. Moses would also disappear into some sort of supernatural cloud as he ascended Mount Sinai to receive the law of the Lord. I should also remind you about the cloud of the Lord that was over the tabernacle by day. As after the tabernacle was created and the offerings started being offered, there was some sort of supernatural cloud that stood above the tabernacle. And we find similar things all throughout the scriptures, clouds of witnesses and and clouds of the Lord. The the cloud that was over the tabernacle was actually called the cloud of the Lord. Very interesting. And with all this in mind, I can't help but to wonder, will the believers who are raptured disappear into a natural cloud made of water vapor? Or will they disappear into a supernatural cloud which may be created by the opening of some sort of heavenly portal? We can't say for sure. And yet, if you'll allow me to engage in a little sanctified speculation, well, it seems to me that the believers who are alive at the time of the rapture, they're going to be carried away into some sort of supernatural cloud or the cloud of the Lord, which then brings us before the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. And it seems to me that the Bema seat of Jesus Christ is some sort of heavenly courtroom, which is separate from his heavenly throne, much like, you know, Roman courtrooms were set up. You would have the throne of the king, but then you would have another separate courtroom, which is separate, uh, you know, from the throne room. 
And with this in mind, I want to remind you that it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul mentions the Bema seat by declaring this. He says, we are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, it'll help us, help us to know here that the judgment seat of Christ is not the same as the great white throne judgment because the great white throne judgment is the judgment seat where unbelievers will be judged at the end of the millennial kingdom of Christ. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul refers to the Bema seat of Jesus where every born-again believer will receive everlasting rewards for the ways that we served our Savior. We'll suffer the loss of those things that we did in the flesh, but we're going to receive these everlasting rewards uh, there in the presence of our Savior. This includes crowns, and at the same time, we're also going to receive the linen robes that John mentioned in Revelation. Remember, it's Revelation chapter 19 where John declares, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is what? The righteous acts of the saints. We will already at this point have on the righteous acts of the saints represented in the in the robes that we will be wearing. And John here, remember, is describing the moments that lead up to the final return of our Savior to the planet. What this means then is that as Jesus is gearing, us to, uh, gearing up to lead us to the valley of Armageddon, believers will have already received the fine linen robes, which are the righteous acts of the saints. And what this means then is that the Bema seat of Jesus Christ will occur before he leads his final invasion to the earth. Therefore, the idea that the church will be raptured there at the end of the tribulation, it doesn't make any sense. Because where do you squeeze in the Bema seat judgment of all believers who lived throughout the entire church age? And many people will say, well, well, it's going to be timeless. No. Only God is timeless. Only God is infinite. In heaven, there's still going to be time. We're singing, we're, we're enjoying moments. All of that takes some kind of time. And while I don't mean to suggest that we're going to measure this based on our position around the sun, well, there's going to be some kind of time. We're not going to turn into infinite beings, though we are eternal. What kind of time frame does the Bema seat judgment take? I don't know. But let me guess. Hmm. Seven years, maybe? I'm guessing the Bema seat judgment will take about seven years. And I believe that's going to take place while the tribulation is unfolding here on the planet. Now, when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 we'll consider how Paul continues to expand upon all of this. And he presents us with the restrainer, and we'll consider the argument from the restrainer being strong evidence, which helps us to see that the rapture of the church will most certainly occur before the time of tribulation. For now, though, I just want to present you with my theory, which could clear up the confusion between the pre- and the post-tribulation positions, because, you know, the two mid-trib positions are just a little silly to me. But, but so, you have these pre- and post-tribulation positions, and the fact is that there are verses that sound like the rapture is occurring at the time of the second coming. 
And in sort of a way, I agree with that, providing we understand how long the second coming actually takes. As we consider the way that the Lord first descends, as he catches us up to meet him in the clouds, it seems to me that the rapture of the church is actually part of the second coming. Think about it like this. The second coming will begin when the Lord descends from his heavenly throne to the courtroom known as the Bema Seat. That's when the second coming begins. And it's at that point in time when the restrainer is removed and the church is then raptured from the earth. At that point in time here on the earth, the Antichrist uh, you know, rises up and begins his seven-year campaign. And that's when the tribulation will occur here on the earth. At the same point in time, the saints of God are receiving our heavenly rewards there at the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ. And this judgment is then, you know, completed as the battle of Armageddon is in full swing. And that's when the Lord then gives us all a bunch of white horses as he returns to wage war against the nations there in the battle of Armageddon. And in the words of Def Leppard, Armageddon it. We tend to think about the second coming of Christ as an event that begins at the end of the tribulation. As if at the end of the seven years, that's when the second coming starts. And yet it seems to me, if I, if I understand the scriptures correctly, that the second coming of Christ actually begins just before the rapture of the church. And it's a, it's a seven-year event which begins with the shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And as Jesus descends from his heavenly throne to the Bema seat, that's when the church is caught up into this supernatural cloud which is obscuring this, this you know, courtroom scene. And in this way, he saves us from the time of tribulation as the wrath of God is poured out upon this planet. And knowing that we're going to be raptured prior to the rise of the Antichrist, Paul encourages the Christians there in Thessalonica to comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Don't divide over them. But use them to comfort one another. Christ Jesus comforted his disciples in a similar sort of way. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 14. There he declared, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Christian, listen, the Lord is currently preparing a place which we now know to be the new Jerusalem. And there's coming a day when he's going to receive us to himself. And so we should comfort one another with these words. That's why Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. And I know that's difficult, especially as we see what's happening here in this world. It's easy to look at the news every day and just have a heart that's troubled. And Jesus says, no, it's the wrong perspective. Don't be troubled. There's no reason for us to be troubled about these things. But rather we can be comforted as we consider the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
and knowing that the church is going to be caught up from the earth before the rise of the Antichrist, we ought to comfort one another with the reality of the rapture as we look forward to the day when we will finally receive our resurrected bodies, which will forever be free from every corruption. In light of these things, let's continue to take comfort in the second coming of Christ. And as we continue to look forward to the rapture of the church, I encourage you to remember that the comfort of the second coming includes the rest of refuge, which includes the hope that fills the hearts of those who trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The comfort of the second coming also includes the relief of our reunion, which helps us to remember that we're eventually going to be reunited with the believers who are already in the presence of the Lord. And so if you're grieving the loss of a believing loved one, take, take great comfort in knowing that we will be reunited and it will feel so good. Finally, the, the comfort of the second coming includes the reality of the rapture, which will be, you know, uh, which will, will actually spare us and save us from the time of tribulation, which will eventually result in the wrath of God being poured out on this planet. We'll be spared from that time. And as we consider all of these incredible truths, I encourage you, let's follow in the footsteps of Paul as we comfort one another with the word of God, which helps us to fix our faith on the second coming of Christ. Let's pray. Let's pray.